I wanted to draw your attention to a couple things. One, uh, every year so far we've budgeted to have money set aside for church planting, church planters, and this year we gave our, our church planting budget to an EPC church plant in Ashland, Virginia called The Branch, um, and there is a postcard that will be on the back table from the church planter and his family thanking our church. Um, we, we contacted them to let them know that we'd be giving to them the same week that they found out they were losing some funding. Um, and our giving didn't offset what they lost, but it was an encouragement and reminder to them that God was going to take care of them. So um, John Gibson and his family are on a postcard back there. You should check it out. Um, also, the um, Spiritual Formation Training Day is coming up on de December 7th, and we've announced this several times. Uh, we're going to keep announcing it. Uh, really want to encourage you to come. Um, it was something that was, when I was coming back from sabbatical, I really just had this idea in my head and in my heart and um, felt like it was important for us and took it to uh, Caroline Holden and Nikki Swan and Kelly McClellan and Harrison Northey and um, they've taken this idea and run with it and it's going to be it's going to be great there's going to be a good bit of teaching but also a good bit of people sharing what God has done in their lives and um, it's it'll be just the morning a Saturday morning on the 7th from 8:30 to 12:30 um, and we're going to be faithful to those time constraints. It'll be worth your time, I'm confident. So I'd encourage you to come make time for that. Um, and if you have any questions about it, let me know. But uh, one morning, and we would ask that if, if you're part of a life transformation group, that at least one person from, from your life, trans life transformation group come uh, so that we can put some of these ideas and, and uh, trainings into every life transformation group so you guys can work these things out uh, together. So thanks for considering that. Um, this morning, we're going to be in the second to last week of our series on the Apostles' Creed and our confession that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so we're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 18. Um, and this passage should be relatively familiar if you've been with us for a little bit because we, we covered this parable uh, last spring. But we'll start in verse 21. And then we'll also be in 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5. So the two places will be this morning. Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of, the serv of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and sent and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Then in 1 John 1, 5, and into the second chapter. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to your people and are yet still speaking. We pray that your word would roll over us and into our hearts. Pray, God, that you would remove from us Anything that gives us false comfort, anything that we use to delude ourselves, to blind ourselves to your truth, God, I pray that you'd free us 
from those shackles by the power of your word. Do this, God, shape us and change us that we might conform to the image of Jesus. Amen. This line that we are looking at, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, uh, it kind of, kind of feels like we, we've sort of addressed this already in talking about what Jesus does. Remember that the Apostles' Creed is, uh, is divided into these three sections, one on the Father, one on the Son, and one on the Holy Spirit. And we talk about the work of Jesus on the cross already, so it kind of feels like, well, didn't we? This was, feels baked in to what we already said. Um, but the forgiveness of sins is rightly discussed in the context of a discussion of the church. And this line to the creed is actually one of the later lines that's added to the creed because of things that happens in the church at large. Um, We think back to the early beginnings of the church, and most people just assume that the church was persecuted for a long time and then then it wasn't anymore. But this isn't really the right understanding of what happens in the Roman Empire. The, the, early, the early church is persecuted, and then it's not, and then more persecution comes, and then it's not, and then there's persecution again. There's these waves as emperors kind of change their minds about what to do. But in the early 300s, the emperor Diocletian is the last great persecutor of the Christian church. And he, he aggressively... Uh, says, if you don't give up your Bibles, if you don't give up the worship of Jesus and come and make offering to the Roman gods, we will kill you. And in North Africa especially, uh, this, the, the governors there, the provincial governors, were eager to enforce this imperial edict. And so the church in North Africa was uniquely presented with the choice of what to do. And what happened is that a great many people to save their lives, um, conceded to the pressure, gave up scriptures, gave up Bibles, and decided to make offering to the emperor because they were afraid. Um, It wasn't just lay people, but it was often including bishops and priests in the church. And then this period of persecution ended, and those people said, you know what, we didn't really mean that. We were just trying to save our lives and uh, a, a significant portion of the church had watched loved ones died, had, played, had paid personal price for this persecution. And what they did is they looked at all those people who came back and they said, you can't do that. That's, that's against the rules. And what they did, this is called the Donatus controversy. These people who they were symbolized by this one person, Donatus, a priest. They said anybody who comes from a priest or a bishop that betrayed the church and came back, their whole baptism doesn't count because those people were corrupted. And so anything that comes from the communion, the Eucharist that they celebrate in those churches, it doesn't count. Baptism that comes from these priests and bishops, it doesn't count because they were traitors and you can't just betray and then come back. And the church fought over this. They wrestled. And ultimately, people like Augustine of Hippo Hippo weighed in and said, look, it it is not about how good the person is. It is about what God does in the church. 
And ultimately, the church is defined as the community of the forgiven. And so you can't just go and say, all these Christians, their baptism doesn't count, the communion doesn't count. Even if these men betrayed the church, they are forgiven and they can come back and God still works in His church even amongst those who are traitors and faithless. Ultimately, it is the faithfulness of God upon which the whole church is built. And so these people were enfolded back into the church, and you start seeing in this creed, in the Nicene Creed, this explicit reference, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's important to us as a community. And of course, you can see that in the teaching of Jesus, in the teaching of our, our brother, the Apostle John, that forgiveness is essential, it's a defining mark in the life of the church. Jesus uh, will say this in a number of ways. He'll demonstrate it in other ways. In the prayer that he, he gives to his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, forgiveness is part of the thing that, that we would be forgiven, uh, just like we forgive other people. And he tells this story of the servant who is forgiven a great deal. His debt is incomprehensibly large. 10,000 talents is a a number that basically seems infinite. It seems impossible to pay off. And the servant in the parable is just forgiven. But then this much smaller debt that is owed to this person that person turns around and is punitive. He punishes. He, he says, you've got to pay me every cent now, and you'll be in debtor's prison until you do. You're supposed to read that parable, hear that parable, and see this servant is ridiculous. It's absurd that somebody who has been forgiven so much could be such a harsh miser with somebody who, who is, owes them a sum of money, but a much smaller sum of money. And John is, John is very blunt. I've said before, I, I find 1 John to be one of the most challenging epistles, portions of Scripture, because he's so stark in his language. You walk in the light, or you walk in the darkness, and there should not be any darkness in you. And he's very clear. If you say that you are walking in the light, but you harbor hatred in your heart for your brother or your sister, you do not walk in the light. For John, it is essential, it is woven into the character of Christianity of following Jesus, that we are both a forgiven people and a forgiving people. He starts in his description in chapter 1 saying, you have to have honesty, and integrity about yourself and confess that you have sin and you have sinned. That you don't, you, you don't get to look to your past and say, well, I didn't know, so that doesn't count as sin. And you don't get to look at your present and say, well, um, I, I, I had sin a problem, but because Jesus forgave me, forgave me, I don't have a sin problem now. He says both present and in the past, you, if you have sin and you deny that you do, you're a liar. If you have sinned in the past and you deny that you have not, you are a liar. He says, 
Sin has woven its way into humanity and the history and the story of humanity both collectively and personally. And we don't get to come into the church and pretend that that is not true. Sin is not the problem of those people over there. Sin is my problem. It is your problem. It is the beast in everyone's closet. And you don't get to pretend otherwise. And you also don't get to come in contact and conflict with the sin of your brother and sisters and lord it over them. You have to forgive them. This this is a fundamental mark of Christian community that we are a forgiven and a forgiving people. It is a past experience and our present ethic. Forgiveness is what marks the people of God. And it is costly, and it is difficult, and we don't, we don't say otherwise. We, we don't say that forgiveness is easy. It's unfortunate that um, we like to tell simple stories, and we just we like stories that we see on the news or read, and somebody, the victim of some horrendous tragedy or, or whatever, looks at somebody and just says, I forgive you, and they give them a hug, and that's it. That's over. Wow, forgiveness is cool. That seemed great. But forgiveness is often a costly decision and a costly series of decisions. It is, it is not a special spiritual power that shines on you in a moment, and you feel great about the person that you are forgiving. If you look in the, the parable, Matthew 18, you'll, you'll have to reckon with the fact that the people who are, who are supposed to forgive, like the servant, and are supposed to follow the example of the king. The king is owed thousands of talents, a significant sum of money. And forgiveness was looking at the servant and saying, you don't have to pay me. Not, I'm not going to put you in jail, or uh, I'll put you on an installment plan. It is, you don't have to pay me. And that is, is basically embracing a debt for himself. He is embracing the loss, the 10,000 talents that is owed to him. He is saying, I will eat that. I will own that. And that costs the king. It costs the king something. And if the, the servant who initially is forgiven by the king would then follow that example to his other servants, he would have to be willing to follow that example and say, I will own the loss of the amount that you give me. That's costly. And forgiveness for one another is costly. Forgiveness is not a declaration of, we're good and I feel good about you. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a declaration of a setting aside of the debt. I will not continue to expect of you that you will fulfill what you owe me. I will treat you as if you owe me nothing. Now, that kind of forgiveness is not in my nature. I can say personally that it is within my nature 
to keep a record of every wrong. And I can say and I can teach my children, and we do. We teach our kids. You, you don't just apologize. You ask for forgiveness. And we teach our, their siblings, you have to forgive them. You're a Christian. That is what we do. I can teach them that. And I can even say the words, I forgive you, but in my heart say, yeah, but that guy owes me, doesn't he? He really does. I forgive him, but you owe me. Which isn't real forgiveness, right? That, that, is, that is a religious sheen of forgiveness to make me look good, maybe make us feel good in the same room, but silently I am stewing and counting the coins that he owes me. That's, that's unhealthy. But forgiveness also is honest. Forgiveness is not cheap, southern, pol- political niceness. The ability to sit in a room together and pretend that we're all right with one another. That's not forgiveness either. That, that's, that's just cultural baggage that we've inherited in our region especially. You are new to the South. You've probably had the experience looking at why does everybody look like they're fine with each other, but you know they want to kill one another. Why, why are they all doing this? This is weird. This is our cultural baggage that we just smile to each other's face, and then when they turn their back, you stick the knife in. Verbally, or hopefully not literally. It is not forgiveness to just cheaply say, I, you know, I forgive you, let's never talk about this again. That, that is, in many cases, our attempt to feel better with the situation. But real forgiveness is looking to one another and saying, you have deeply wounded me. Deeply wounded me. And we need to talk about that. We need to talk about that. And then, once you actually discuss what was done, the wrongs that were committed, the debt that is owed, then you can have a discussion about what it means to set aside that debt. But just pretending is not the conversation that the king has with his servant. And if anything, that kind of cultural commitment actually enables, empowers, and excuses what John says is inexcusable the harboring in your heart of hatred. So we can't do that either. But we also, it's important to say, this this emphasis on, on quick and cheap forgiveness also places people in bad, unhealthy situations. This light Christian version of forgiveness erases the real consequences of sin as well. So it is not incredibly uncommon to hear a Christian who has been abused by a spouse or abused by somebody in the church to have a Christian tell them, well, you just need to forgive them and nothing changed beyond that. And then what slowly accumulates over the years is what? More abuse in the name of Christian forgiveness. And that is not acceptable either. All because we want to cover over what is sin. 
And the Christian command to forgiveness is not a requirement for every Christian to tie themselves to their abuser or to protect their abuser because they're just supposed to forgive. That's not what the life that Jesus is inviting them to either. Jesus is, is clear. If you harm one of my children, you harm one of my little ones, it'd be better if a rock was thrown around your neck and you tossed into the sea. Can we really envision that Jesus saying to a family, just forgive the abuser and carry on? I think not. Christian forgiveness is founded in the reality that sin is horrible and is not to be ignored. It is not to be ignored. It is serious. It is destructive. It is not to be hidden in darkness and put away, but is instead to be brought into the light to see it for all of its terribleness, and then to react in a way that is unnatural for us. We are meant to view that sin between one another in light of the cross. We, we, this enables us and frees us to have conversations one, with one another that are direct and honest and clear. You have wounded me you have sinned against me. Whether you did it on purpose or you did it on accident. And both things happen. And you, you're, you can be a part of a church, a part of a Christian community, and you don't have to just say, do what the rest of the South is doing. And smile your way through the pain. But instead, their commitment is to one another. To say, we can't, we can't give one ounce of purchase to sin. We have to name it between us. And we have, to, we have to do justice to it in the light of the cross. Paul will say very clearly in his passages that we read every week in 1 Corinthians 11 about what is supposed to happen at the table. That you are not meant to eat communion together and be harboring resentment in your heart towards another. Paul takes it that seriously. That this should not be a manifestation of something that is not true, that you are not actually communing with one another. You should repent and confess to one another. That kind of community ethic is, is costly and difficult. And, and we don't say otherwise. We are not meant to be a community that's just like any other social club. And actually, by, by putting this line of the creed right after the line where we say we believe in the communion of saints, it frees us as a people to speak rightly and truthfully about both the work of God in the world and the nature of humanity left to itself. We can say we believe in the communion of saints. We can say we believe that God makes people holy. And at the same time, we can confess that we are a people who are marked, defined, and perpetually in need of forgiveness because we are also a people who are continuing to struggle with sin. Famously, Martin Luther would describe this as we are simultaneously, at the same time, we are holy and, and sinful. We are saint and sinner at the same time. 
Because Jesus makes us holy before God, and yet we are also people who are humans and not fully redeemed and and set free from the effects of sin. That our progression in grace, our growth in grace will not be over until we stand before Jesus and see Him face to face. So until that happens, our expectation and our confession as a people is that we need forgiveness. We are a people who weekly here confess our sin together. That is not an accident or a custom. It is because we need together, individually and corporately, identify ourselves as a people who need the forgiveness of God. And we need the forgiveness that we can extend to one another. Forgiveness is hard. It is not instantaneous. A lot of times when the wound is deep and grievous, it it is a daily act to choose and say, I will set aside their debt. I will not treat them as they deserve to be treated. I will forgive the 10,000 talents. And very often, the day one and day two and day three and day 100, you don't feel it. But forgiveness is not about your feelings primarily and initially. It is about your choice to what you will do with their debt. And if you find yourself embedded in, enslaved in unforgiveness, the standard for your freedom is not that you feel okay with that person. What that person has done to you, if it is especially serious and grievous, you may never be best buds with that person. In fact, that might be inappropriate for you to be best friends with that person, depending on what they've done to you. But over time, in a continual choice, I'll set aside their debt. Eventually, forgiveness works its way into your heart. And who knows? I don't know that you'll ever feel like you think you should feel. It is, it is not a working towards a feeling that we are talking about. It is an act of the will in light of the good news of Jesus because of who the king is. That we continue to make that choice. And we pray and we hope and expectation. We long for the day when we will see Jesus and for the first time notice that we are free. For, for some of us, that freedom of forgiveness will only be truly experienced when God wipes every tear from your eye and heals every wound and banishes every hint and smell of death. But if you put your trust in Jesus, that will be your reality. So we act now trusting that, the, that what God says about the future will be true. It is, a, it is a confession of kingdom life. And this is the nature of Christian life. It's, what, it's how we come to the table. We eat at the table in anticipation and a foretaste of what the great marriage supper of the Lamb will be. 
We, we are baptized into the church, marked for his own purposes in anticipation that one day we will fully experience the citizenship of the great Jerusalem of God. This is the way that we are as a people, acting now, trusting that God has done enough, and anticipating what he will fully and finally do. Because ultimately, when we confess as a people that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are saying that each of us together, we stand before the cross of Jesus and daily, hourly confess, that was for me. Ultimately, a great cost and violence of forgiveness is not even about my choice. It is about the choice of God aimed in my direction. It is the crucified and risen Jesus Christ that tells me again and again and again that I am deeply in need of forgiveness and that God's great storehouse of mercy has more than enough for me. So that when we hear John's words, to be honest about our sin, my sin, we don't hear that news without also hearing that God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and make you righteous, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, he says. We can't hear the bad news that we are a people who need to confess our need for forgiveness without also hearing that when we come before God, we have waiting for us an advocate, Jesus Christ, our high priest, who is also the sacrifice for our sin that is offered in our place and in our stead. We can't say this news that sin is real and horrible and amongst us without also confessing, but Jesus Christ is here and He is good and merciful and He is amongst us. It is His foot on the back of sin that enables us to freely, joyfully confess, I am in need of forgiveness. And ultimately, when we are teaching one another this truth, when we are forgiving one another, we are telling each other the gospel, it is not a bad moment when we confess our sin to one another. It's not. It's a good thing. It's not a moment of shame. It's a moment of freedom. It's not a bad thing when you turn and confess your sin. The bad thing was the sinning. The confession is the good thing because it is turning to Christ, our advocate, and feeling in that moment, knowing in that moment that the great storehouse of God's mercy is unleashed on you. And you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to hide in fear or shame anymore. Bringing into the open is the good part. And something in us is afraid to bring things out into the open. That thing that's in you is sin. That's the thing that's trying to enslave you. So when there is sin between us and we're like, I don't, I don't, this is awkward, I don't want to talk about it. That's the power of sin trying to keep you apart. Having the hard conversation, pulling the pain, pulling the sin into the light is the moment of freedom. God brings us as we are before Him and showers His mercy on us. Jesus is spread wide before His people, split open. 
as the great sacrifice for his people and the great high priest for his people to demonstrate that there is more than enough now and forever that we might come and receive his mercy. I've mentioned this book on the Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers a couple of times. I wanted to read this little portion. He quotes a man we call Isaac the Syrian from a long time ago. At the end, a church that takes its stand on the forgiveness of sins can never be a church of the pure. It'll always be a community that is patient and understanding toward the timid and the imperfect. Whenever a judgmental, elitist spirit enters into the Christian community, we need to hear again this confession, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that we stand not by our own achievements, but by the achievements of Jesus' death and resurrection. We believe that the spiritually strong and the spiritually weak are both sustained by the same forgiving grace. We believe that we rely on grace, not only in our worst failures, but also in our best successes. We believe that if ever we should turn away from grace, if ever our hearts grow cold and we forget our Lord and become unfaithful to his way, he will not forget us. His faithfulness is deeper than our faithlessness. His yes is stronger than our no. In a 7th century sermon on God's mercy, Isaac the Syrian said, As a handful of sand thrown into the great sea, so are the sins of all flesh in comparison with the mind of God. And just as a strongly flowing stream is not obstructed by a handful of dust, so the mercy of the Creator is not stemmed by the sins of His creatures. God is inviting you to the river of his mercy this morning. To take, to scoop up all the handful of your sins and cast it in to this swiftly moving stream of his mercy and let him carry them away from you. If you are struggling under the burden of what you have done or have not done this morning, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. That you can stand before God accepted by him. And if you are struggling under the weight of unforgiveness this morning, God wants to free you from that burden. That you don't have to live imprisoned by what was done to you and by what you have failed to do to another. But instead, you can draw on his own life to continually pick up your hurt and your pain and to throw it in that same river of mercy. We believe in the forgiveness of sins and the God who has done all that is necessary both for us to be forgiven and to be forgivers. This morning, come and see him and worship him and fall down before him because he has more than enough for you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can come before you and confess the seriousness, the awfulness of sin to confess that it is amongst us, that it is in us, that we are children of the light because you have made us to be so, but we have dabbled in darkness, both against you and against our brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that you would entice us with the freedom and the goodness of the light, that we would flee the darkness. Father, I pray for those who struggle with unforgiveness. People like me who are, want to keep score, 
to hold the debt slips in our pockets. And Father, I pray that you would free us from that way of life, that prison of bitterness. And God, I pray for those who have been deeply wounded and sinned against, that you would walk them slowly through this way of forgiveness. So you would enable them to choose day by day to set aside the debt that has owed them. And that you would bear the cost of that debt with and for them. Father, I pray that we would be a forgiving community. Not just forgiving, experiencing and embracing the forgiveness that we have before you. But that we would extend forgiveness to one another quickly and easily. That sin would be confessed between us and we would bring it under the cross so that it might be dealt with there. Jesus, we thank you for you and the work that you've done. Help us to continually come back here to this place, to the foot of the cross, and drink from the waters of your life that flowed for us now and forever.